0: Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast. As we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. On this special episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with three-time World Series winner, Dave Stewart. All right, let's do this. And now, here's Here's your your host, Brett Boone. Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone.
1: And today on the program, I'm joined by a three-time World Series champion. He won 20 games, four times, and he's a member of the Athletics Hall of Fame. Ladies and gentlemen, Dave Stewart. David, thanks for coming on the show.
2: Thanks for having me on, Booney. Appreciate it, man. Thank you.
1: Stu, getting ready for this podcast. I did some digging. How good of a football player were you?
2: I would be considered to have been pretty good in my time.
1: I heard you had a lot of scholarships <laughs> when you ended up going the baseball route. I think I think you know, like all of us, when when we talk about other sports we play, the one we the one we chose usually worked out pretty good. But uh, if you'd have gone the football route, could could you have played at a high high level? I'm talking NFL. You know,
2: if I would, I mean, I had some. 30 football scholarships. And uh, when I graduated from high school, I wasn't 6'2", 240 pounds, I was 5'10", and 190. And um, I played a linebacker position and um, I was considered to be one of the best high school linebackers in the country. Um, So I guess to make a long story short, had I known I was gonna grow to 6'2", 240, I think I probably could have competed at that at the high level.
1: Very cool. Uh born in Oakland, California. I want to hear about your childhood. What was what was it uh what was Dave Stewart as a little kid growing up?
2: I was a I would be considered a, a parents nightmare. Um, I was a, <laughs> <laughs> I had uh six sisters, me and my brother um, it was a hobby to get into a fight every Friday and get suspended from school so that my mother would have to take off from work on Monday to get me back in school. And that continued through elementary and until about my, um, seventh grade year of school, um, I was considered to be a good student. Um, I liked school. Um, I liked uh, school because, you know, I got an opportunity to socialize and you know be around other kids. Um, you know, I came from a working class family. So from the time that I could, uh, take a job, which my first job was cutting grass in the neighborhood. And then you go on from cutting grass to delivering newspapers and from delivering newspapers, I worked at a gas station with a man named Edward Henry, who taught me how to, uh, mechanically do work on cars as well as pump gas and uh, my last job was working at the gas station and and working at the boys girls clubs uh with my sister carolyn and so um you know i've always had a job um i played all three sports as a kid um i grew up in a competitive environment Uh, my brother was competitive five years older than me and it didn't matter to him. Uh, if, if, if it was baseball, he would beat me down. If it was basketball, he had a height advantage. He'd beat me down in that until I got tough. And, um, that's, that's me as a kid growing up.
1: St. Elizabeth high school. You you mentioned you played three sports. And I think a lot of it, you know, back then that's what we did. You know, it's not, it's not like today's game where everybody's, everybody's playing one sport. I, I don't know that that's necessarily, uh, a good thing or a bad thing, but, um, were you, were you a fan of any, you know, I know you're you were a, you were a uh, advanced, uh, in, in the football arena as a kid. Did you have a, did you have a favorite team? Was it the Oakland A's? I know you're growing up in Oakland or where did you have a favorite football team? Who, who was your favorite player? Yours?
2: Yeah. It was crazy because my favorite three teams basketball, it was not the Warriors. Um, When I was a kid, the warriors were playing on the San Francisco side. Um, my favorite team was the New York Knicks. Um, and as, and they're my favorite team today, by the way, and the warriors are a great basketball team, but I'm, I'm a Knicks fan, uh, in baseball, I grew up on the giants until the A's came to Oakland in 1968. And then I started watching the A's. Um, and, uh. And football, um, I grew up watching the Raiders. Uh, the Raiders uh, played uh, down the street from us um, at a place called Frankie O'Phil, which now uh, Frankie O'Phil is Laney Community College. And then uh, eventually they started playing at the Coliseum. So I've been a Raiders fan until they left Oakland three times. And so now I don't have a team. I just watch um, watch football, love the sport, and root for for the team that uh, that, you know, gives a good game on Sundays.
1: So you're in high school, you have 30, uh, 30 scholarship offers. You said uh, football wise, you end up signing with the Dodgers in the 16th round of the 1975 draft. And, I know you were a catcher in high school. Were, were you pitching and catching? What, what? When they signed you, what, what was the plan? Was it to turn you into a pitcher, or, or did they have that idea of you starting as a pitcher uh, going into your minor league career?
2: In little league, I caught uh, Babe Ruth. I caught, <clears throat> and uh, I pitched. Well, I mean, like every kid, you pitch a little bit in little league. You pitch a little bit in Babe Ruth, but not enough to call yourself a pitcher. My, my position was that of a catcher. And in high school, I was, uh, I was a catcher and, uh, by my senior year, I got an opportunity to start three games uh, through the course of that year. Um, I ended up, uh, going to, I ended up going the baseball route because as I said, I was smaller coming out of high school. I ended up, uh, you know, visiting colleges and seeing that the height and weight difference was huge. Um, and then, um, you know, I was actually at work one day and my sister told me I'd been drafted by the Dodgers and they didn't sign me right away. They didn't sign me for about two weeks uh, after the draft. But the first thing I had to do was I had to go to a trial camp that they had over in, um, over in, uh, San Rafael. I went to that trial camp. It's crazy. There was a couple of names that signed with me. Rudy law was also at that camp and I uh, caught for three innings, and I pitched one inning, and um, then I didn't hear from them for another week, and then um, they called and told me that uh, they were going to sign me, but they never said what position I assumed I was going to catch. They never said what I was going to sign and what their thoughts were, and I didn't find out what I was going to do until I got to my minor league assignment uh, in Bellingham, Washington, which is when I found out that I wasn't going to be catching anymore. I was going to be pitching.
1: And we have a lot of guys on the program. A lot of us signed uh, out of college, and then a lot of guys signed out of high school. Um, going straight from high school, I, I, I went to USC. I signed after my junior year. I felt like college, you know, at the time, Stu, when I was 18 years old, I was that, how, how can you not dress, draft me? I'm the best player. And it, it turned out for me, I think college was the best thing for me. I, I needed a few years to kind of grow up and mature outside the baseball arena. And it ended up when I signed, I was kind of ready for that step, and I went through the minor leagues real quick. But I'm always uh, I'm always curious on guys that sign out of high school and how that transition is for you going from high school straight to pro ball because, as you know, uh, pro ball is a lot different. You know, we're all big fish in little ponds and, until we all get together. How was that uh, experience for you?
2: Um, you know, baseball I thought was – you know I thought it was a great game to play all everybody that I knew um played my cousins, my brothers everybody played um I felt like I was a football athlete, but not big enough to play play the game and so when I got to to Bellingham and found out first of all that I wasn't going to uh and I wasn't going to catch then immediately i I pushed the panic button and it's a crazy story, man that when I got there and talking to bill barrier and he told me you know what my destiny was going to be and after we went through the argument of whether i was going to pitch or not because it was an argument i was adamant i wasn't going to pitch he was adamant i was he told me there were three catchers that were drafted in front of me and not only that he threatened that the airplane that i flew to bellingham was not going to be the way that i was going to be transported back that i was going to have to catch the greyhound back And then, uh, when I called my mother, um, to tell her that I was coming home, um, quite frankly, the deciding factor Booney was my mother. And she said, Hey, you made, you made a commitment to play. I don't care if it's catching. I don't care if it's the water boy, that's where you're going to be. And don't bring your ass back home here. You're going to have to honor your commitment there. And so that's how it went.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because so many guys, you know, they, they they have a similar story to what you just explained. It's you go off, you sign, but it's a little bit of a shock. You know, we're we're used to wait wait a minute, mom's not there to, to, to have dinner on the table or or you know, just just you're used to being a kid living with your parents all of a sudden it's like wait a minute i'm on my own i'm a big boy and now i'm doing this for a living this isn't this isn't little league where we're having a snow cone after the game anymore this is this is for real and it's just interesting to me that the stories uh from from various guys it's very similar to what you just explained uh is is this a fact Stu? You go o your first? Did you go o in twenty two in Bellingham? That first uh, A ball team you were with?
2: Our first A ball team lost twenty two straight games. <laughs> we were <laughs> we were playing so bad that they were going to put us on a national broadcast. Um, I think the record uh, minor league consecutive losses was twenty four straight. We were going to be broadcast on the twenty fourth game. Um, but we we ended up uh, winning. We ended up winning our 23rd game of the year. Now, in fairness to our team, um, we, back in those days, the draft was just 25 players, so we drafted 25 players, and we played in the in the Northwest League, which was kind of uh, uh, not a high, but uh, it was a advanced A for most organizations and we were 18, 17, 18 year old kids. I think we had one junior college kid on our team and and we were overmatched for most of the season. Um, and especially for those 22 straight losses, it was, it was an experience. It it really was.
1: That that was a, that's a pretty good initiation. I mean, you talk about going through adversity and dealing with that. You're right out of the blocks. You got it over with to start. Um, and look at it, it seemed that 1977 you you started to get get you know you, you started to adapt. You go 17 and four with a, with a two-1 ERA in the Midwest League, and then in 1978 you make your debut with the Dodgers. Uh, give me a little give me a little snapshot of that debut with lA
2: Well, you know they, they called me up uh, I'm not sure if it was a September call-up or just before September. Uh, but I got called up, and I sat for a few days. And um, the uh, first team I pitched against was the was the San Diego Padres, and uh, you know I was I was anxious. It was a relief appearance, it was a one one a relief appearance. And I think, like most young kids, when you first get your opportunity to pitch in the big leagues, I'm 21 years old, and you know. Probably on television, if it's a televised game, you could see my heart beating through my neck, um, sweating bullets and, you know, just hoping to get out of the inning. And I was successful. I got out of that inning and that uh, was my first experience at the Big Leagues.
1: While I got a quick second, want to give a shout out to DraftKings. We've partnered with DraftKings now and they are the
0: official sponsor of the Boone podcast. Dan? Thanks, Brett. The moment we've been waiting for since September is finally here. In honor of the big game, DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of Super Bowl 56, is giving new customers 56 to 1 odds on either team. Bet just $5 and get 280 in free bets If your team wins, DraftKings Sportsbook is now live in New York, meaning you can bet from almost a third of the country. If Sportsbook isn't in your state yet, play DraftKings Daily Fantasy Football Contests for Super Bowl 56. New customers can get a free shot at a $1 million top prize with their first deposit. Now that is my kind of deal. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app, use promo code BOONE, B-O-O-N-E, and get 56 to 1 odds on either team. Bet just $5 and get 280 in free bets if your team wins. That's promo code Boone, B-O-O-N-E, at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of Super Bowl 56. 21-plus minimum age and location requirements vary by jurisdiction. See DraftKings.com slash Sportsbook for full list of requirements and state-specific responsible gaming resources. Void where prohibited. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In Tennessee, call or text the TN red line 1-800-889-9789. In Connecticut, call 888-79-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat. In New York, call 877-8-H-O-P-E. ENY or text H O P E N Y four six seven three six nine.
1: And now back to my interview with Dave Stewart, seventy-nine and eighty. You didn't get back to the big leagues. In eighty-one, you you got there and you were there as a reliever, uh, but you were there to stay after eighty-one. Ends up being you end up going to the World Series and, and getting a ring, your first year. Uh, take me through that eighty one season. And and this is before you became the Dave Stewart we all know as that that starter.
2: Yeah, I mean I had a career minor league uh cr- I had a career minor league uh as a starter. And then um you know the Dodgers teams in those days, if you were going to make their team, um usually it was going to be as a reliever. Um Fernando had had come on the scene and had had a tremendous um year the year before half a season the year before in 80. And then in 1981, which was actually a strike shortened season, we had a, we had a 60 day or 61 days strike that year uh, for Fernando mania, uh, was, was in full force. And the truth be told, um, it was more exciting to, to be a part of that team and just watch the things that Fernando was able to accomplish as a young 21 or 22 year old. At the big league level, and how he dominated some of the greatest hitters in the game. Uh, watching the fans coming to the ballparks, I mean, in Groves they were coming left and right. There were more people at, at a Fernando Vallesuela baseball game than there were any other games that the Dodgers played during the course of the year. And then, you know, he, I could say, single-handedly carried our team to the playoffs, um, and and um, was a key component to us winning. Um, he was not only just a, a great, great uh, uh, pitcher, but he was very athletic. Um, he could hit, fill his position, ran the bases. I mean, he did all things well. Um, and it was just amazing to be able to watch him every fifth day or every fourth day uh, to do the things that he did. Um, you know, it wasn't easy for us to win that year. Um, the first game of the playoffs was against the Houston, our first Series was against the Houston Astros. Um, we ended losing the first two games. Uh, thanks, thanks to yours truly, I got losses in game one and game two. And our backs were against the wall. We couldn't afford to lose a game three um, because if we did, then we'd be eliminated. We ended up coming back, winning three straight games from Houston. Um, and then in Montreal, uh, Lasorda got smart and he didn't pitch me in that series. Um, <laughs> but we still had our backs against the wall. We lost the first two games there. Uh, we came back and and won three straight against Montreal. And then sure enough, we're playing the Yankees. We lose the first two in Yankee stadium and we come back and win three at Dodger stadium and go back to New York and win one game. And we end up winning the world series that year in a very dramatic fashion. It was, it was just an unbelievable series, unbelievable year because of Fernando. Um, it was just a great, great time to be a, a part of the Dodgers organization in the city.
1: Eighty-two, you go nine and eight. Eighty-three, uh, you go ten and four, and uh, you end up getting dealt to the Rangers uh, for that eighty-three season uh, to finish there. And uh, you played there through eighty-five, I believe, before you traded to the Phillies. How was that time for you in in Texas? Going from LA, going <laughs> from the you know Hollywood and and winning winning a ring to Texas.
2: I tell you what, if you, if you look at my career, I had, uh, two, maybe three losing seasons, uh, two of them were in Texas, uh, both years, we lost a hundred games, um, our team was so bad in Texas that, um, in the, in the 84 season, well, 83. Um, you know, I, I inherited the 100 loss season then, but in 84, um, we played that season out and had a couple of rainouts and were paying, we're going to play some meaningless games at the end of the year. Um, and, uh, Doug Rader, uh, who was our manager, uh, wanted to take a team vote on whether we should, whether we should play, uh, play a game that would have essentially been our hundredth loss. Uh, it would have been a makeup game, but it was a meaningless game. It was a game that we would just play. Um, the team that we were playing wasn't in playoff contention and where we were in the standings, didn't make a difference. Our team was so bad that we voted against playing that game and Doug Rader had a natural fit. Um, I had great teammates though. Uh, Buddy Bell was on that team, Toby Hara, Mickey Rivers. Um, Scott, uh, it was just uh, Jim Bibby. We had Pete O'Brien was our first baseman. We had a really nice group of guys, but we just did not win baseball games there. And, and then in that, uh, and so to answer your question, a great city to play in, great people, um, but we just could not win baseball games there.
1: You get traded uh, to the Phillies in '85 mid-season. Uh, and they're there. You end up getting released in 86. And this is where and this is why it was so well, not only educational for me doing my research on Dave Stewart, because I know the Dave Stewart, you know, when I was a kid coming up as a rookie, you were at the end of your career. But you were in you were in Oakland with those great Oakland teams. And, and it was interesting for me to go back through your career. That 86 season with the Phillies, you get released. You end up signing with Oakland. And you get you get paired up with Dave Duncan, who I heard was a big part of your life. You know, I know that forkball that you had. I don't know what we're calling it, a forkball split uh, made a big difference in, in the Dave Stewart. You became 86. You go nine and five with a three seven. And then that four in a row where you just you won 20 games four years in a row. Uh, take me, take me through that a little bit. Talk about Dave Duncan, his influence on you and how you became the Dave Stewart that we know today. And it was starting in that 86 season where you really kind of took it to another level.
2: You know, the process actually started well before that. Um, Tom, you looked at my, when you looked at my minor league season, um, you'll see my first two years, I was, Winless uh, with the Dodgers organization in minor league baseball, and I went from not winning a game to winning games. Uh, and the, the the key to that was Sandy Koufax, and I learned a lot from him in an in instructional league in one year that produced 17 wins. And Sandy worked as a mentor to me, even as I was in the big leagues with the Dodgers. Um, and so there were a lot of things that I learned from him, including um, the forkball. Um, I had a, I was having a not so good season in 82, um, wasn't able to get people out. I didn't have a sinking fastball. I had a four seamer breaking ball and a changeup. And Sandy asked me if I knew how to throw a two seamer, but when Sandy put his hands on the ball, his fingers are very long. His hands are very big. It literally looked like instead of a two seamer, it looked like a split. And I, I did exactly what he was doing and ended up with a split so um um so um when we went through that that changed my whole 80 80, 83 season around 83 i came in the year with that and as you saw the numbers were 10 and 4 that year had the two down years with texas Philadelphia, I thought I got traded prematurely, but still stayed in the air and stayed in the side pocket of Sandy and kept taking the knowledge. And and then I came to Oakland. Um, And it was not immediate success in in Oakland, quite frankly. I didn't pitch very much the first half of the season for them. And then um, Dusty Baker, who is like a big brother and a close friend even today, um, said that, hey, you know, you, you stay, stay strong, make sure you keep your head up, whatever you do, don't, don't, don't take your uniform off, give your uniform back, make them take it off of you. But he said, "Stu, you never know what's going to happen? And sure enough, we get, we turn, we're, we're turning into the second half of the season, Jackie Moore and Weststock were fired. And when they were fired, it opened up a door for me because. As I said, I wasn't wasn't being pitched very much by them. Uh, Tony La Russa calls me um, when we're in Milwaukee. Um, he has not yet come to the team. Uh, we were being interim managed by uh, Jeff Newman. And Tony calls me in Milwaukee and he says, Hey, um, you know, my first game with the team is going to be in Boston. It's going to be a Monday night game. And uh, the... The end to that story is you're going to be pitching against Roger Clemens, And he asked me, does any of that bother you? And I said, no, it was a short conversation. We hung up. He's in uh, Boston. I get my start in Boston. Um, a pitch that I hadn't had the opportunity to use because Doug Rader in Texas told me to put that, put the fork ball in my back pocket. He never wanted to see it again while he was managing. So I didn't use it there. And I wasn't in in Philadelphia long enough to get that opportunity. So um, that start, um, I broke that pitch out. Um, I ended up beating Roger and Boston, um, pitching seven innings in that game, I believe. And uh, that was the evolution. Dave Duncan saw the pitch and uh, asked me, where did I develop that pitch? I told him I always had it. And he said he encouraged me that that pitch was going to be the pitch that was going to change my career around. And it did. But it wasn't just the pitch. Uh, Booney, Dunk and I, we talked about situations, situational pitching, um, counts, percentages of outs in, in, in different counts. Um, the ability to to the inside part of the plate and use the outside part of the plate to get out. It was an education that I had never gotten, um, from any pitching coach. Um, Sandy Koufax was, was the key factor for me with the confidence and, and breaking my mechanics down and teaching me how to be able to throw the ball in the strike zone because I, I, I couldn't throw strikes. And then Dave Dunk Dun- Dave Duncan refined all of that, but he also put that mental edge between my ears on watching hitters and watching hitters swings, um, paying attention to counts, doubling up fastballs on the inside part of the plate or doubling up a breaking ball. If you miss, there was so much education from Dave Duncan that, um, I, you know, I, in this conversation, I probably would have you here until tomorrow, um, telling you all the things that he did for me as a pitcher to make me better
1: and you talk about the split and and you know just my career the the guys I've gone through I, it was almost like From the beginning of my career, a lot of guys threw the split finger, And at the end, it was kind of, you know, in the middle 2000s, 2005, 2006, not as many guys were throwing the split. And as a hitter, I was like, thank goodness. Because if you come up with a good one, the whole the the whole reason behind the split. And for those listening to the Boone podcast is to give the illusion that it's a fastball. And then at the last minute, it falls off the table. I think it resurrected a lot of careers. I, I faced Kurt Schilling in his days with Philly, but in the end, when they were winning World Series with with the Arizona Diamondbacks, he won one with the Boston Red Sox. That was the difference maker for Kurt Schilling. It, it went from, I always had comfortable at-bats against him. All of a sudden, he came up with that split. He was a different guy. He was a plus-plus guy. Same with Roger Clemens. Roger Clemens obviously was, had a Hall of Fame career before then, But later in his career, and when he was with Houston, I think Toronto, he came up with that split. And that was the difference maker for me. It was just one more weapon he had. And it's changed a lot of guys' careers, and it's made a lot of guys' careers.
2: I mean, it's a a pitch that, um, you know, a lot of people, um, it, it depends on who you are. Some people are critical of it. They think that it causes physical injury and damage. And some people praised it, and I'm one of those guys that praised it. Um, I never had any issues or problems with my elbow. Um, I had one elbow surgery, and that surgery never cost me one day of active time during the course of a year. I mean, it was for bone chips. Um, the pitch was was a lifesaver for me. Um, you know, the four consecutive win, four consecutive twenty one seasons. Um, I went from a guy that was an average guy that really made hitters think about what they had to do when they were going to face me the next day. You know, I don't know, you know, if my fastball was above average or below average, or if it was, you know, I, I never paid attention. Plus we never had guns to know whether I was 95 or 98 or 90. Um, I just know that the fork ball gave me a different swing. Um, When hitters were looking for it and the fastball was coming. Um, it, it's just a great pitch. And like I said, it made my career.
1: Yeah. And hitters, I'll tell you, when you have a good one, it's just you put that little doubt because it's an embarrassing pitch. If you, you, you you know, the night you had that really good splitter, you're getting a lot of swing and misses and not pretty swings. As hitters, the last thing we want to do is be embarrassed. <laughs> Trust me. No, and no you just put it. You just put that doubt in our mind. So you're right. You 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 allude to the fact that I don't know what my fastball was. Well, if you've got that split, and it's in the back of my mind as a hitter, if you locate your fastball, that's all you need to do. You don't have to be throwing 100 if you've got that split. I remember, and it wasn't a split. He called it a changeup. But uh, Trevor Hoffman in San Diego, when he was having that all, all that success as a closer, it wasn't that yep. he was throwing 100 miles an hour. It's that he would dot that that four seamer or that two seamer, but in the back of our mind, we're waiting for that change up, you know, and, and it's yep. the whole, it's the whole difference. Hideo Nomo uh, to a different degree. When he came over with the Dodgers, it was that split Hideo threw about a, a straight a four seamer as you could possibly throw, but that's not why he had the success. It was that split that fell off that fell off the table. And, and you're right. We could, I, I love this type of, uh, this topic and we could talk for, for days about this for the hitter perspective, the pitcher's perspective. But I want to get to those four years. And you have a real interesting, you know, three years in my opinion. A lot of where were you when certain things happened? That 88 season was, you know, obviously at gives up the big home run. I believe you started that game and I was actually at that game, Stu. I was a I was a young kid. I was in college at USC. I called Tommy Lasorda last minute, and I've told this story before. And he, he left me two tickets, and it was Aaron and myself. And, and I drove to Dodger Stadium uh, on my scooter from USC, my brother on the back. We had the last two seats in the upper deck down the right field line. I left, I think, in the eighth inning. I got back to my my dorm back at SC and and Gibson was rounding the bases. Uh where were you during that 88 when that happened uh, when Gibby hit the the big dramatic home run?
2: I was in my I was in my my locker pouting like a little kid because <laughs> because I was taken out of that game. I thought I could finish that game. Matter of fact, I knew I could finish that game and and I was just really upset that Tony had taken me out of the game. So I was in the locker room, um, ice shoulder, ice elbow. Um, actually waiting for Eck to just close it out. Like he always, like he always does, um, Eck never walks anybody. So when he walked Mike Davis, that was for me, a sign that something wasn't going well. And, uh, then it just became, uh, on the edge of my seat, um, and so I was in my locker and and I just couldn't believe that, uh, you know, Eck is dependable as the day is long. I couldn't believe that he'd given up the given up that home run.
1: When you end up losing that that World Series of the Dodgers next year, you're right back there. You go twenty-one and nine again. Uh, you end up beating the Giants in that in that. Uh, in the Bay Bridge Series, you end up being the MVP of the World Series that year, 1989. And another, where were you at? Where were you at when that when that uh, earthquake hit? And, and we've had a lot of guys on both on both teams on the program, and and they've told their story. Uh, man, I wouldn't even know what to do. What are you thinking? What's your first thought when, when you realize that there's an earthquake? And then all of us saw the after effect and, and the, the double-decker bridges that went down. But but how much did that affect uh, that series at the time? And going forward, you end up winning it. You end up sweeping the Giants. But uh, once again, a little snapshot of, of what's going on, what's going through your mind where you're at when that earthquake hits. It's
2: funny, man. We were, we were sitting in the, in, the, in the clubhouse. I was in the clubhouse with uh, – Parker and, and Dave Henderson and, um, Harvey the clubhouse manager comes in and he's telling us, you gotta, you guys gotta get out of here. Um, there's a, there's an earthquake. And, uh, I mean, we absolutely could not believe that this was going on. So, you know, we're hustling, they bring us out on the field. And, and that's when, you know, that there's panic going on. Um, we could hear the fans. Um, there's a noise that you'll never ever forget, which is panic and, and fear. And you could hear the fear and the panic in the, in the seats. You know, you look up and you see the piece of center field. That's, that's fallen uh, from the center field, from the center field seats, uh, down to the stadium. And, and then you've got a field full of, highway patrolmen, police, firemen that are escorting. Um, Well, they're trying to keep calm. Some are bringing our families to the field. Um, It was just, you know, and I grew up in the Bay area, so um, I shouldn't say that I wasn't bothered by it. Uh, But my fear was, you know, I got family there. They're all coming to the game. My family's never on time. And so they weren't at the stadium didn't know if they got caught on the bridge, if something had happened to them. Um, it was just – it was an unbelievable uh, feeling and the emotions but through the through that period of time uh, you, I can't even explain.
1: You end up getting through that. You win your second ring. You got one more to go, but uh, that had to be a, – a, Pretty good scenario with everything that went on. You end up, you end up being world champions again. Nineteen ninety, Tony Larusa names you the, the starting pitcher for the All Star game, uh, and not too many people get. You know, I've you, you talk to a lot of great players, and and some of them weren't even lucky enough to get to a World Series, let alone win one. You've been to, t- you've been to three. You've won two. And and not too many people get to go to the World Series back to back to back years. Nineteen ninety, you're right back at it. You're the huge favorite with the you know with the Bash brothers and Ricky and yourself and Eck closing games out. Man, I remember those teams uh, with Cardi Lansford and and Canseco and Mac and and you mentioned uh, a great guy uh, Hendu who who I spent a lot of time with in my Seattle years when he was up there doing the play by play and you know he passed away a few years ago but what a what a good guy and and what a uh, what a charismatic guy, you know, that was kind of when when I was fighting through the minor leagues and I was watching sports center after a ball game and, and I'd always see him do it. He always had that smile on his face. He was always dancing or doing something goofy. I got to spend a little time with him. Like I said, in the early two thousands when he was in Seattle, but what a, what a great team. And, and we've had guys on from the Reds, Barry Larkin and, and Sabo and, and, uh, uh, the boogeyman, Eric Davis, and he talked about that series against play, uh, playing you because nobody gave the Reds a chance. They end up sweeping you that year in 90. And and looking back, was there anything that said, this is kind of the end of our run? Or or did you say, no, we got a few more years of this dynasty?
2: Well, I mean, in baseball, you never know, you know, how things are going to end up. Uh, um. You know, contracts were, were coming up. were were coming up. Uh, I think Eck, Eck was 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 in the middle of trying to get his done. If I'm not mistaken, I think that uh, Sandy had Eck, me, and Ricky all on the same timeline for contracts. Um, and you know, all the other things that happen. You know, with health, and and you just never know what's going to happen. Um, we were a, a nice mix and blend, um, of youth. you know, we had, uh, several keys of the year: Steinbach, uh, Walter Weiss, um, Canseco McGuire, and those guys were all stacked one after the other. So we were a nice blend of youth with, uh, the middle of the road guys. And then the more veteran guys like myself and X, so we felt that we, we could still win. Um, and then, you know, unexpectedly in, in the 91 season, Carney Lansford got hurt and, and, uh, uh, physically, you know, I had some breakdowns and, and wasn't the, the pitcher that I had been, uh, the four years prior. And, you know, Dave Hindu had some injuries and we really got hit with the injury bug, but, um, you know, overall, we really didn't play as well as we could play that year. And and when you have a run like we did uh, from 88 through 1990, um, you know, it's really difficult to expect that you're going to get into a World Series for a, a fourth straight season. 91 and 92.
1: Uh, 92, you go 12 and 10. And uh, then you're leaving Oakland and place where you grew up had had a ton of success. How'd you end up getting to Toronto? What were the, what were the factors there? I I think you were a free agent at the time.
2: Yeah, I was a free agent. And quite frankly, I knew that the the curtain was closing for me and I wanted to finish my career in Oakland. I I didn't have any intent to leave Oakland. Um, But um, even with that being said, I believe I still made 34, 35 starts in 92. Um, and showed well in the playoffs and, uh, you know, 12 wins in the season is not a bad road either when you make that many starts. And so, um, you know, negotiations as they always, as they happen, they got real ugly, uh, between my agent and, uh, and Sandy. Um, and Pat Gillick was very engaging, uh, with the Toronto Blue Jays, um, and, Um, he seemed to be a man of his word and he was, I was one of the first calls that he made and, um, what was pending for them is whether they would bring David Cohn back and I believe Coney went to the Yankees. And, uh, when Coney went to the Yankees, then, uh, Pat Gillick poured it on hard and we ended up going to Toronto.
1: Toronto, uh, and at, at that time, you know what a great place to play. That was the beginning of of the new stadium, and and you had a you had a bunch of great players on that team. Ninety three, you made the right choice, Stu. You go twelve and eight, and and you're in another World Series, and you end up winning your third ring, you're the ALCS MVP, and I forgot to mention that that Reds in that Reds World Series year ninety, you were the ALCS uh, MVP that year as well. And I got one more where were you because you've been in a lot of uh, where were you moments. And I believe you started that game when Joe Carter hits the big home run. So you're on both ends of it. You, you get the Eckersley yep. where it doesn't turn out well. And now you got the reverse Where it turns out, unbelievable, you guys go on to win that World Series. Uh, Had to be pretty awesome. Is there any comparison between the three? I mean, you come up in your first real year of of being a big leaguer, you win a World Series, then you win the one, but it's kind of a little bit bittersweet because of the earthquake and everything that happened. But then you go to Toronto in your first year, your World Series champs again, third ring. Uh, Anything different about those? Are they all all, – just well,
2: as just well, as awesome. Los Angeles, Los Angeles was, you know, for me, I just felt like I was a part of the team. In um, Oakland, I felt like I was in the mix. I was in the mix, and I made a difference in winning. In um, Toronto, I felt like I made a difference in winning. But I, the man, I played with some some great guys. I, but not that I didn't with the other teams. But Paul Molitor was, you know, he was getting towards the end of his career and had never won a World Series. Um, Joe Carter had won a World Series the year before. Uh, Cito Gaston, it was a great experience playing for him. Um, You know, Robbie Alomar, I mean, I can name off some names, man. It was just a great experience winning that one and winning in Canada um, because, oh, you win win a World Series in, in the United States or Oakland or Cincinnati or whoever it is, um, you're a part of, you know, the United States. And really, your city is the only only, only celebration. Whereas when we won in, in Toronto, it was the whole country. from From Toronto to Ottawa to Vancouver, the whole country celebrated us winning that World Series. And it was just an unbelievable, it was absolutely unbelievable how um, we as players were treated across Canada.
1: You know, that's a great point. And I didn't even think about that. You know, if you're if you're a hockey player or you're in the CFL, then it is a city by city. But you're right, when there's only and at the time there's two Canadian teams, the Expos at the time, the Toronto Blue Jays. It is. It's a country countrywide celebration. So you've been on you've been in three parades now. Was there anything different? Uh for that Toronto win? Cause you're right. I never thought about that. That wasn't just the city of Toronto. I'm sure the city of Toronto went, went goofy, but it was kind of a, a countrywide, like pride thing. Like you were their team and it didn't matter what province you're in. That was their team. That was their win.
2: Yep. And it was, I mean, we did, we celebrated Toronto. Uh, we also celebrated Vancouver. So we, we got an opportunity to celebrate, uh, across the country, uh, Toronto was the the east, and Vancouver was the west. And we had an opportunity to celebrate both places.
1: Uh, after the '94 season, you head back to Oakland, and you end up retiring after after the '95 season. Uh, kind of a coming home for you, where where those great teams played. And uh, in 1996, you go on to work under uh, Sandy Alderson. And was that something as a player that you thought about mid career or, or towards the end of your career, you started formulating a plan when, when you were done, when you were finished playing?
2: Well, I had, uh, I had a lot of sit downs with the owner of of the Oakland A's, Walter Haas, very good man, owner of Levi Strauss, about what I wanted to do post baseball and uh, Walter um, asked me what I wanted to do. I told him that, uh, I wanted to, um, I wanted to become a general manager in baseball. Um, he asked me, why would I choose that path? And I told him that the general manager is the guy that puts it all together and you pick the people to, to make it work versus being a manager and being given. Um, you know, the pieces to make it work. I wanted to be a part of building the chemistry and the success of the team, uh, versus, uh, being the guy that, that, uh, is on the field that, 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 that has to make it work. And so, um, after the 95, actually, I didn't even make it through the 95 season. I, I retired in June or July, and I went to work for the Oakland A's as a special assistant to the general manager.
1: 97, you move over to San Diego, and and I think you you worked in the same capacity, or were the assistant GM under Towers in 97?
2: Under Kevin, I was a special assistant, but with more responsibility. Um, With the Padres, I ended up putting together their first uh, working agreement with Mexico, and uh, I was responsible for them building their first Dominican Academy.
1: And that's interesting. I mean, you just retired all this, you, you know, you, you go to work under Sandy. Now you're working under towers next year. You're getting back in uni and you're going on the field. And wouldn't you know it, you go to another world series. And, uh, I guess I want to contrast the difference. It's one thing when we're playing, and, you know, we control a lot of our destiny. When when you got the ball in your hands, it's, it's you against us, but, I wanted to pick your brain a little bit about being the 98 uh, pitching coach for the Padres where you end up going to the world series. How different is that? Because once, once you, once you let your pitcher go and he's out on that mound, as you know, just like a hitting coach with, with me, it's like, once you leave that on deck circle, nobody else is going to help me get a hit. Uh, How is that for you watching your pitchers, you know, that you work with and you're in the grind with all year long to go out there and and is it that much different as a coach to to when you were a player as far as the win and the loss in the World Series? Is it just as tough? Is it different? I don't know. I've never I've never done um, both. Walk me through it.
2: I, I think if you do it if you do it in the right way, um it's the same because you should take Everything that you feel as a coach, and you should be able to relate that to the player. And when that player walks a certain way, you walk a certain way. When that player has success, it's your success as well. Um, As a pitching coach, what I tried to do was pour everything that I had into the player. I wanted that player to be sure that he had every bit of knowledge that I had, Um, as, as a, as a player, um, when I would go out to make a mound visit, um, and I don't know what the conversations are with other pitching coaches, but, um, I would tell the pitcher, this is what I think your pitch should be in this situation and what you should be trying to accomplish in this situation. You know, So it wasn't uncommon for me to say, hey, look, this is a good situation for a good sink at fastball on the outside part of the plate. Or, hey, if you can throw that back foot breaking ball right here, I think you're going to be real happy with the result. That's how I coached. Um, I coached pitchers. I mean, we were a unit, and those guys felt that the success of this team was going to be every bit because of what they did um, versus what the hitters did. I had them in the mindset that they were the reason that we were going to win and they were going to be the reason that we lost, and they bought into it.
1: You go on to to uh, work for the Blue Jays, uh, work for the Brewers in 0-2, uh, and then you take off on another, on another uh, adventure, and you, and you take on being an agent. I think you're the agent of Chavi. Uh, Chavez third baseman for the Oakland A's uh, Kemp with the Dodgers and uh, I don't know that's just another uh, another adventure well, you took on what, what, how was that how did that come about
2: you know I uh, <laughs> it's funny because <laughs> I started out um, I started out with the uh, USA Olympic team um, and I was uh, a coach with the, with the Olympic trial team uh, in Panama. And I got an opportunity to be around players and, and, um, the guys on the team were all talking about the things that, um, they were missing in their representation. And obviously if I'd done it before, then, you know, I knew what I expected in my representation. I thought that the guy that represented me was one of the best. His name was Tony Atanasio. And I thought he was one of the best in the business and in the way that he cared for me as a player. And I thought that I could bring that to the table with with players if I represented them. And there were enough guys on that team that were talking about uh, needing better representation. And and so, um, you know, uh, the the hidden piece is that, that spring training, uh, Allard Baird called me and asked me if I'd be interested in coming to spring training with the Kansas City Royals as a consultant. And I did it, um, but it, it wasn't fulfilling for me. And so um, I started the sports agency that uh, – I started that sports agency that winter.
1: 2014, you go to the Diamondbacks with your old skipper, Tony La Russa, uh, and you're the general manager. Uh, everything was cracked up to be? <laughs> A lot more? Did you learn anything?
2: Um. <laughs> Yeah, I did learn. I learned a lot. I, I you know, I, I talked to Michael Hill quite a bit and uh, I talked with Kenny Williams on a, on a lot of occasions. And, um, you know, what I found out, um, in my position, is it's really, really difficult, man, to, to manage, uh, three people above you. I had Tony LaRusso above me, Derek Hall, and, and I had, uh, a lot of dealings with the owner of uh, Ken Kendrick. And it's, it's really difficult to manage, um, three different people, three different personalities and get them on the same page with what you're trying to do. Um, and, and, uh, one of the best pieces of advice I got from, uh, Mike Hill was, you know, to, to, to stay in this position for a long period of time, you have to learn to manage up. And I don't think that I learned to do that.
0: Uh, that, That
2: was not one of the, one of the lessons that I learned. Um, you know, I had, uh, I had, uh, it was just difficult. Um, you know, we got a lot done. I was, I was proud of the work that I was, was able to do in in the two years that I was there. Um, we were able to, to work within a, a, a limited budget. Our budget was 90 million, um, each year that I was there. Um, the minor league system, when I got there was depleted. We put uh, players in the minor league system and um, we made that team a competitive team um, uh, before I left there. As a matter of fact, in the 17 season, they ended up going to the playoffs. So um, when you say that I learned something, the, the lesson that I learned, if I was ever offered the opportunity to do it again, is to put myself in a relationship where I'm dealing with strictly one person, whether it's the president of the team, or the the director of baseball operations, or the owner of the team. But uh, when you're trying to work with uh, three different personalities, it, it's a really tough job to do. It's a tough enough job to do when you're just dealing with one person, but when you're dealing with three personalities, it's a really difficult job to do.
1: Front office, pitching coach, agent, general manager. Since you retired after the '95 season, how's the game changed till 2022?
2: Well, Booney, you know it's, it's it's changed a lot. Uh, you know, I grew up in an era where you know pitching inside uh, to hitters was a part of the game. Um, that part of the game, I, I think, has changed. And I shouldn't say it's changed. I, I think pitching inside with the knowledge and ability to throw strikes. Um, is the part that's changed. Um, it's not uncommon in my period of time to, to throw a fastball inside four strike and then double that pitch up for a fastball off the plate inside. Um, I, I didn't pitch in an era where where you would see a pitcher throw four or five consecutive breaking balls in a row. You'd see them double up a breaking ball, but five consecutive breaking balls in a row. Um, that was not a part of my era. Um, I didn't come from an era where I'd take my cap off on on the mound during the course of the game and and look at uh, information that's given to me to tell me how to pitch to a hitter. Um, I had a Rolodex on every hitter that I faced, and I knew in situations what hitters would do, what they wouldn't do. I knew what my pitch selection should be against certain hitters when I faced them, Um, and that part is missing. Um, We're in a period of time now where – players and pitchers are dependent on the information that they get, um, to, to, to do their jobs. Um, and you know, that's, that's just, it's a tough place to be in in the game today. Um, when, when you, when you, you don't know what you're doing out there and you have to, I guess pretty much, if you were in school, you'd have to, you'd have to have a book, um, underneath your desk when you take the test, um, to get the right answer. And uh, so I didn't grow up in that period of time. I, I grew up in a period of time when it was you could never have a, 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 a whole infield on one side of the field. Um, that didn't take place in the period of time that I played. We had hitters that knew how to spray the ball and hit the ball all over the field. Um, you couldn't position a player just one way in that period of time. Um, and, you know, I believe in, in analytics and, and what it means to the game, uh, but I think that analytics is a 50% part of the game, and I think the experience of the game and playing the game and your gut and your instincts for the game is the other 50%. Um, and so um, to answer your question, and that was a lot. I mean, that's the difference in the game that I played and the, and the game that we're watching today. Um, the players today are dependent on information that they're given to go out and play the game versus trusting your gut and playing with your instincts and really using your your your, your body of talent versus pieces of your talent to play.
1: You know, and, and there's so much made of it today, and it's like, it, you, I think you said it perfectly. We, we didn't come up that way. Uh, our generation of players. Uh, And it's funny to me to think if I see Dave Stewart on the mound, checking your cap, see what pitch you're going to throw me. I mean, that's funny. Just, just on the surface, I watch these kids today and they're checking their cap. Where am I going to defend this, this, this hitter? It's amazing to me because we didn't come up in that. We, we learned to play hitters. I knew when you were on the mound and, and, I'm watching every pitch. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put myself in a defensive position, and I'm going to take a lot of things into consideration. It's the pitcher. Can he locate? Is he locating his pitches today? Uh, who's the hitter? How's he swinging? I've been watching him for two games right now. I know how to defense him. I don't need anybody in the dugout, and especially once you're in the big leagues for a few years and you learn all the hitters. I don't need my, my coaches in the dugout telling me where to defend. I got this. But today – and, and I don't blame the guys today because that's what they came up in. And, and some of these guys from the age of 16, that's all they know is, all right, here's your cue card. And, and and it's almost like, you know, I talked to my son who's playing minor league baseball. I said, is there like a what, what is on that cue card? You know, is there an X that you have to go stand? Could you imagine, Stu, you standing on the mound pitching tonight, and and me me playing in in shallow right center field, and you're going, Booney, I I'm gonna, th- I'm not gonna throw that pitch. Get your butt over here. You know, I think of the guys I played with when I was in Atlanta, and, and I'm playing with you know Maddox, Molts, and Glavin. It, Defending the way they defended A, I'd get a look like, what are you doing? Get over here. I'm gonna throw this pitch in the outside corner. It's gonna be a two-seamer. I'm gonna bring it back. Why are you playing in right center field? It's it's just different, but it's a it's just a different era. And and it's you know, it's something these guys come up with. We didn't come up with that. Yeah. So
2: yeah. You know, that it's, argument it's goes. A go, it's a different day. It's
1: a different day. day it's a different day. It's a different day. Um 2018 pretty cool you know and i've had a few guys on the program reggie and and vita and and Larusa. uh you went into the a's hall of fame uh what kind of tell me about that phone call when you got that when you got that call
2: well the phone call itself was amazing in itself but in 2018 you know i went into the a's hall of fame with with uh with reggie jackson and um and with Ricky Henderson and, and I mean, real hall of famers, these guys are Cooperstown hall of famers. And, uh, that was the inaugural year of the A's hall of fame. So to, to, to go in with those guys, Raleigh fingers, go in with those guys. Um, catfish Hunter was represented by his family. It was just an unbelievable experience. Um, and one that I'll always share cherish. I mean, in our own mind, I think, you know, we've all in our own mind had hall of fame moments when we were on the field and, and, and we were players. Um, but you know, to to be elected into Cooperstown is is one thing. Um, but to be elected also in your, in, in your, your team, the team that you played for to go in their hall of fame. And then it also happened to be my hometown. Um, that's, that it's just another level, um, for me, um, it, it was, it was a totally different level. Um, and one of the, one of the best feelings that I'll probably ever have in my life.
1: And I think just to one up that 2020, uh, the As are going to retire your number. I, I always tell the guys I said that's about as cool as it gets other than a statue, and not too many people have a statue, but the As are going to retire your number with with uh, the last couple of years and what've we've, what we've gone through with the with the COVID thing. I know it's been pushed off, but uh that's got to be pretty special, getting your number retired. No one will ever wear that number again for the Oakland A's.
2: Well, once again, um, you, the names that are on on that on that that are retired are all Hall of Famers. Um, I will be the only Hall, non-Hall of Famer whose number is retired for the Oakland A's. Um, and and once again, it, it's it's just a tremendous honor um, from the organization. Um, you know, Billy Bean, um, who played the game and has been uh, the leader of that organization for a very long time, uh, Dave Cavill, who was the president of the club and, and John Fisher, the owner, um, to have that much admiration for me as a player. Um, and it's gotta be a combination of, of, of a few things. I mean, I've been very active in the community since I was, since I can remember, so with the community, um, what I've done for the organization. Um, I'm just honored that they decided to, to to slip past one of the rules of the organization and put a non-Hall of Famer in there with the Hall of Famers.
1: David Stewart, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. That was a lot of fun. Uh, And like we do each and every Boone podcast at the end, we bring back the voice of the podcast, Dan Levy, for a question from the fans. Dan?
0: Hello, guys. How are you? All right. All right, Dave. This one comes from Mark in Chicago, and he wants to know, Dave, what was your relationship like with the media when you were a player? And were you glad that social media was not around when you were playing the game?
2: Uh, well, my relationship with the media, I thought was good, but when I was eliminated from the hall of fame ballot after in the first year, I guess it wasn't that good. (laughs) Uh, And and yes, I am glad that there is no social media. Uh, There wasn't as much social media in my period of time. Um, you know, it's one of the things that I don't envy about today's players, the social media, the the media in general, it's it's it, at a bigger level now um, than it was when I played. Um, social media makes it almost impossible to step outside of, of, of your door uh, without somebody trying to find out what you're doing, how you're doing, um, what your garbage looks like, what's in your garbage can. And so I'm, I'm, Really grateful that I haven't uh, or I didn't have to deal with social media in my
0: period of time. All right, sir. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We appreciate it.
2: I appreciate you guys having me. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks, Stu.
0: Mailbag. Hi, right, Brett, you know that sound, don't you? It's been a while, Dan, but I think it's mailbag time. Mailbag it is. Welcome back. My favorite segment and the same guy, Mark who's asking Dave that question, wants to pose that question to you. How was your relationship like with the media? And how glad are you that social media was not following you around? Wow, Uh,
1: man, I think the social media has changed the game. You know, it's a completely different social interaction. Today's players versus uh, the players from my generation and definitely the generations before that. Uh, I think, I think Dave summed it up pretty well is you can't go out of your house. You can't go out of, uh, of your hotel on the road without somebody having a camera in your face. So I think because of that, the players really don't leave, you know, they, they stay in. Um, I I don't know because I, I, I didn't grow up in the era where uh, of cameras and, and when you're famous and when you're a, when you're a player in your heyday and everybody knows who you are, uh, wow! To have the cameras on you all the time—I don't know—because when I was going through it, it, it wasn't camera time. So I'm—I'm I'm glad I didn't have to go through it. You know, I'm I, glad I didn't have to go. I wouldn't like that. I wouldn't like that every You know, and and you never know when they're filming you. Not that you should be doing anything wrong, but uh, you know, I wasn't—I wasn't the the biggest saint my whole career. I, I <laughs> so, was. Uh,
0: I would actually, I mean, I hear we we ask that question a lot and every person we have on here, they always say the same thing. I think it would be, I think you would have actually liked it. And let me explain why there are so many players that are on social media right now that are sharing videos of themselves doing stuff and marketing themselves and making so much more money. And like you said, you people already knew who you were, so when you were going out, yeah, you may have had a couple times where you weren't really the nicest, or maybe you were on about with somebody you maybe shouldn't have been with. But th- <laughs> I'm not saying you, I'm not saying you, I'm saying in general, people maybe right. they're maybe they're doing something they're, they're hanging out with some people that they may not want to be publicized, but I think you would treat it as such, like okay, I can't be on about with that person, but with social media maybe i could do something here and it's going to lead to a bigger sponsorship and all of a sudden you got you know you got you know a liquor label that's sponsoring you you got different kinds of people and more money coming in so i would i would Would, think it's i would think it's opposite because i think if you lived under it and you were playing under it like your son i bet he i bet when, when he when he does actually make the team and he and he goes for it i bet social media is going to boost his career
1: no, I agree with you, and and it's once again, it's you can't really put yourself in that position because you didn't grow up in that position, right? I think earlier in the segment with with Dave, I, we were talking about uh, the game, and and guys, look, you know, he said he couldn't imagine uh, looking under his cap to see what pitch he was going to throw, and I, <laughs> you know, I came on top of that with I couldn't imagine having a cue card tell me how to defend a hitter. I, I couldn't imagine doing that because that's I. That wasn't our generation, right. but if I was in that generation, it'd be something different. The modern day player uh, that's grown up in this social media, this is a normal way of life for them. So, th- so you're right. They, they, they use it to their advantage. And I think if I was coming up now, it wouldn't be that big of a deal, but. But with my past experience and the generation I grew up in, it's really hard to put yourself into that genre and into that that social media world, especially, like I said, when you're on top of your game and, and you're in your prime.
0: Alright, well that's going to do it for the Brett Boone Podcast My name is Dan Levy I am the technical director and producer Of the Boone Podcast The executive producer is Rich Herrera Digital content gets uploaded by Liz Landry Please share the Boom Podcast With neighbors and friends And make sure you subscribe to the Boom Podcast So you never miss an episode of the show If you can give it a 5 star rating And share your feelings with a review We would certainly appreciate it for Brett Boone, who you can find on social media at the Boone Twenty Nine. I am Dan Levy. It's Bass on Air, B A S S on Air, on the socials. Thanks again for listening. We'll talk to you guys soon. See ya.